This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. Upcoming from Essential Tremors Presents. 7th Stainine Festival, Milwaukee, on Saturday, July 30th. Our inaugural Milwaukee version of the festival will feature 14 artists and run from 1 in the afternoon until midnight at Cactus Club. Also upcoming, Bill McKay and Nathan Bowles on August 4th at 1801 Bar in Upper Fells Point here in Baltimore. Lastly, on October 4th at Rhizome in D.C., Essential Tremors presents Rough Trade Records band Caroline. Tickets and more information are available for all of our Essential Tremors Presents events at EssentialPodcast.com. There might be a good start jumping off place just because there's a lot written about like how punk rock was really a, a response to like big bloated Led Zeppelin rock and things like that. But there was a, a it's for me a pretty false narrative because we weren't really listening to that stuff. Big bloated Led Zeppelin rock, we were listening to this. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. easily argued that there's not an American punk rock band of more importance than Washington, D.C.'s Fugazi, and that one of the critical components of that band is the inventive, precise, and powerful playing of their drummer, Brendan Canty. Raised in D.C., Canty rose to prominence in the D.C. hardcore scene of the 80s, and after playing with a series of bands over the decade, came together with Ian Mackay, Joe Lally, and then Guy Picciotto to form Fugazi. Canty is currently the drummer in DC-based group The Mesthetics. We spoke to him at a live taping at Fadenzonen here in Baltimore. The first song Canty chose as being formative for him was Aqua Boogie by Parliament. I answered no before the book. I can't swim. I never could swim. I never will swim. I'll put me down. Let go of my leg. I don't like when you shout. I told you I can't swim. Oh, no. Big smile on your face. Tell us about the song. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's an, it, um, 
Well, it's an odd assignment, right? So you really, getting it down to three songs means you have to like really do some soul searching, which it, I spent way too much time thinking about this. <laughs> but um, I thought it might be a good, um, there might be a good start jumping off place just because there's a lot written about like how punk rock was really a, a response to like big bloated Led Zeppelin rock and things like that. But there was a, a it's for me a pretty false narrative because we weren't really listening to that stuff. Big bloated Led Zeppelin rock. We were listening to this, you know, I grew up in DC and DC public schools. And um, to me, like growing up, this is the last of uh, five records that parliament put out that was um, leaning on this bunch of cartoon characters called, uh, you know, Cerno is devoid of funk. I mean, I'm sure everybody here, maybe everybody here knows it. I, to me, I, I, it was everything to, to me. And I'm not just the, not just the, um, cause I was young. I was, you know, maybe starting when I was like eight. So when that came out, I was 12 and I was dead into it in middle school. Um, and it's probably, the last song I danced to at a school dance. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, where I like picked up Brit and took her to the dance and at Deal Middle School. And uh, I was wearing white jeans. I slipped in, <laughs> slipped in the mud and got mud all over my jeans. It's freaks and Geeks, basically. It was like Freaks and Geeks, yeah, times a million. It was pretty... <laughs> But this was a number one song, you know, I mean, in, in, on R&B radio and uh, D.C. public schools were, um, you know, primarily African-American. And um, so I grew up. That was my world listening to that stuff. And, and, and the, another reason why I, I chose it and why I chose a lot of these songs is because, you know, um, they're songs you carry with you, you know, like they're things that um, I don't necessarily listen to this song every day, but I can't think of a time, a month or so that hasn't gone by where I don't reference or think back at Funkadelic or, you know, Parliament. I mean, Parliament is for kids, you know, or it was for kids with the veiled weed references and the uh, nursery rhyme songs and the supercalifragilistic raps and stuff like that but it but it gets you into it you know and the music is just so good the playing is so good it's bernie worrell it's the jb's you know playing on horns it's bootsy collins playing bass you know i mean it's like when you, that song goes for another eight minutes and <laughs> <laughs> and the playing is incredible like the piano bernie's like piano playing on it is amazing so the more you go back when you go back to it and listen to it you know you really do you do get more out of it as you get older all those um and it and it just takes me back honestly like listening to that stuff takes me back to like you know hanging out at I had a, you know it's just a lot of friends at that middle school and um and growing up in DC and and I had a big family and you know there's seven of us in our family and my sister who is, was also in DC public schools was um, hit me to a lot a lot of stuff and um, 
what oftentimes if my parents would go away, she would like build a DJ booth in our living room and invite all of Duke Ellington School of the Arts over and have big parties. So it was really, it was a, you know, it was a very vibrant, fun place to grow up. Um, and um, <laughs> the turn, the turn, the weird turn, there, another reason why I wanted to bring it up in the, about the false narrative is like, at some point I, um, I got rid of all these records, like when I got into punk rock, thinking they weren't cool, right? And I felt like profound regret almost immediately and bought them all back. No, another copy. Yeah, yeah, another copy. So it just definitely, it was, it was like, oh, this, I'm, you know, shaving my head and, you know, doing this other thing. And then I was like, what the, what have I done? And I went out and, and got them all again. And um, and it's just like, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of like this, the, the smash disco record smash, you know, like people are really into being like, you know, rock and roll and, and going out and destroying them. And then at, at, somewhere down the line, you're like, oh my God, that was like wildly homophobic and horrible <laughs> and racist. <laughs> like the, all the real messaging behind smash disco was at this you know at some point you're just like that was really disgusting really screwy so i've i made it a point or i've made it a point not you know to be pretty um small c like catholic in my listening and like listening to um as much as i can and much uh from all over all over the radio dial so so obviously this got deeply under your skin this mm -hmm. song this band these records yeah how does how does this inform your playing when you started playing or even to this day how does how do you think it sort of leaked into what you were doing with fugazi and then various other bands and aesthetics well i don't know you know it's it's hard to it's hard to say i mean i can, i don't think i can like re reduce it to specific influences besides oh my god they're the best there's the best bass player on the planet playing with the best drummer on the planet and one of the greatest producers making great records. I think um, I think there's like an outlandishness to the to the to it, um, and like all records that you love and you carry with you, they're they're like an example. They're just like an example of what's possible. So. Um, if you're lucky enough to have the best musicians or great musicians hang around you, you know, then you hold on to them. I mean, the the fact that George Clinton kind of lost all those guys and was playing 930 Club by like 1986 or something, I saw him playing in front of 400 people. Um, whereas like growing up in DC, you, he came to town and it was on the news. They were like, oh, and you know, it, it, like, and the footage from that period, from 77, 78, of them playing at the Capitol Center is available and worth watching. <laughs> well, so were you, you know, eight, eight, nine, 10, up through those ages, were you already playing music? Were you already thinking about playing music? Um, we, I came from a very musical house. My, my dad, though he didn't do it for um, a living, he toyed with the idea of doing it for a living. He was a piano player from the Bay Area, from San Francisco. And yeah, my dad s 
saw everybody. You know, he'd pull out a record, a Duke Ellington record. He'd go tell you all about seeing him at the 1939 World's Fair with Ella Fitzgerald singing. You know, he and he saw it's like pulls out a Miles Davis record. He goes, I was at those plug nickel shows, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, he was just everywhere. So he really had and and because and he didn't do it for a living. He became a journalist, a writer, an editor. He ended up uh, editing architecture magazines and had a passion for urban affairs and 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 architecture. And that's what he ended up doing. So um but he he did sort of like you know tap me you know and he'd like rent a drum set and bring it into the house he'd rent you know and he jammed with people in the neighborhood so i'd go over and see him jamming with people and there'd be like somebody with a drum set in the corner of their living room and it was like having a horse in the living room it was so loud and i was like i need that in my life and then you know they'd be real instruments playing in a small room and to me, that's that made all the difference. So, um, yeah. So I came from a, a musical, like we would play. We had a piano, sit around the piano and play. And I toyed with um, bringing in some a piece of jazz music or Big Spiderbeck or something like that. Or, um, and I thought that this made more sense because this is has like a true sense of ownership when I got old enough to be like, this is absurd enough. And um, it was, it, 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 I, it had me thinking, cause that's this, this exam, this test that you put me to, it's, <laughs> it gets you thinking, is it your thing? It, it does get you thinking about like, what, why does it mean something that like, why does this thing mean something to me? Even though why it does bring me great joy every time I think about it, like these, um, and I think, yeah, I think it's that sense of ownership. I think it's a sense of outlandishness. I think it's a sense of what's possible on a record. I mean, the idea that they made not just, um, um, just to make a record that sounds anywhere near like what they did with the music, music, uh, the high level of musicianship on it is just amazing. But then to actually put it over on people and have gold records and, and like, with a pr pr profound sense it's sort of like if zappa was having hits to me no yeah i mean seriously like like zappa's like that level i mean now he's i mean he's always been appreciated but did he ever have a hit i can't remember anybody valley girl maybe valley girl that's it nice lee what is it was that a hit too small hit <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> Anyways, to me, it was like that level where you're just, you know, getting your getting your mind blown. I, it also reminded me, um, so I can uh, have a parenting teaching moment because I have four children. So two of my kids were 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 taught by this great kindergarten teacher, uh, Mr. Welsh, at our school, Merch Elementary in Washington D.C. And um, one of our kids was just so wildly into comic books and we're like kind of worried about it you know <laughs> and he and he was like oh you just now huh so now comic yeah books. i know <laughs> well no i mean that's i mean i i'm just worried he was obsessing about it and he's like oh no you should let him read anything he can 
because he sees, you know, that reading is currency. You know, it's reading is power. You know, you know, you can get joy out of it. You know, and we relaxed about it, and it was sort of in a lot of ways. The Parliament is the comic book of music to me. You know, <laughs> it was the entry level drug that took me into a lifelong of like records are magical. Right. This has actually come up in conversations for this uh, show, but we, I don't think we've ever talked about it during a show, which is, uh, you know, my personal belief that music is basically the closest thing there is to actual magic. You put these things together and maybe it's different for someone who actually plays, which I do not, but you put these sounds together, these people playing these contraptions and they make sounds and it creates these transcendent things that you can either experience live or sometimes if the band, the musician is very lucky, they can put it on a record and it will outlive them, you know, by decades, maybe longer. And that just seems like that's always been, you know, you talk about the thing that you get obsessed with. It's like getting obsessed with records early on and that that sort of magical thing that this little plastic thing has on it. That's, you know, maybe it's comic books, maybe it's that, but that thing that, that makes you feel like you're you're reaching out and touching something else or there's, I don't know, am I well, sounding you, completely insane? Not at all. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's literally the space between us is that like the, as the performer and the listener, like it's the, it's the Venn diagram of what I bring to you, to the, to the, to it in terms of sounds, but it's also how it hits you. That's the only thing that matters. You know what I mean? And it's hitting, hits all, all music hits everybody completely differently. I mean, that's been the great lesson. Um, and um, it's always astounding to me that anything that we did from 1980 or 85 or whatever, or, Whatever, like the Rights of Spring record, I can't believe that people still listen to it. Well, because we made it in a day, you know, and then you put it out there, and then it just like continues. Thirty-five years later, it's really weird. It's an odd. It's a, it's an odd vantage point that I have. But I will also say that you know, um, having made films, and um, that people use music differently, you know. And um, they use it on their in their daily life, and it and it and it carries the imagination with it. You know, um, it's not one thing. Well, the best films do that as well, too, right? There's enough. There's enough mystery. The trick is to have add as much mystery as you possibly can to the, to the batter. You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guests' essential songs. The second song Canty chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Mesthetics by Scritti Politti. We know how it sounds, we know how this sounds. Yes, that's it. 
Okay, so this is Scritti Politti's second single. It was done, it's um, a bunch of uh, uh, Peel sessions that they did in 1978. And um, so just chronologically, like, you know, I, I could have chosen sort of a bunch of different singles for this. Like after, as getting into punk rock was like, uh, honestly, I gotta say, I would have played the Bad Brains right now because they were this band that my sister took me to see when I was 14 years old and that changed my life. They still are the best band I've ever seen live and they put out the, you know, Pay to Come as a great single and then their, the Roar tape, which we, you know, they're just, they changed everything for for me um, in DC. I'm gonna get to Scritti Politti, but, <laughs> but just, you know, um, there was a moment that kind of went off in my head. I was, I had, I was uh, also going to, I was going to Duke Ellington at the time and uh, for theater, and I was not really very happy. And I was like, the Bad Brains. I went to see the Bad Brains, and I started to like figure out that the greatest thing that in the entire world was happening in my town. Right to me, I was like, oh well, this is like I've done a certain amount of research and. <laughs> This, they're the greatest band in the whole world and they're my, you know, right up my house. So I felt like I really wanted to be a musician, but I, you know, so I transferred to Wilson, which is where all the punk rockers went. I mean, I wasn't like musical enough to go to Duke Ellington. I wasn't a musician. I just wanted to be in bands. So I went up there and started playing there, um, playing with some um, friends, local friends, young, a little bit older than me in a band called Deadline. And Ian put out our record and um, on, or we were on Flex Your Head. And so I was like, whatever, 15 on there. And I didn't even play the bass drum. You know, I just played like, you know, and he still, still, still put it out. Um, anyways. <laughs> so I was, um, so I, anyways, so we, we, um, I started playing in bands and then started working at a record store in the in high school. Yesterday and Today Records, which a lot has been made of because it was sort of where, you know, Ian Ian worked and Key and a lot of us worked there. Some of the older um, people in the music scene, Ted Nicely, who was in the Raz and um, um, the Tommy Keen group, and Dave Stimson, who's from Chicago or uh, Detroit. Or, Ohio and he'd come down just people who knew a lot about records and skip himself who knew a lot about records Which is where my education in music really formally began because then you'd be sitting around and You know pulling singles out and just say how about this one? And then they would say well that you know not the 1967 blah 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 played on the you know and the b-side is such and it charted at this and you know and that they if you like that you're gonna like this and you know, I, we just worked our way through the whole... Algorithms is what you're saying. Yeah, it was like human algorithm. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is kind of a shame that they don't award college credit for time working in record stores. <laughs> I agree. You learn a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, Professor Ted, Ted Nicely uh, taught me so much. Um, and he went on to produce uh, a few Fugazi records. Um, and he's a fantastic producer. Um, and a great guy, and a, and we just loved, and I mean, he turned me on to Scott Walker, you know, I'd say Scott who, and he'd go, 
hold on. And he'd go and get like a pile of Scott Walker and really, you know, play me. Um, just It just never stopped. Um, anyways, at the time, um, Scritty Politty, it's like in the 80s, they, they were kind of like a massive pop band. Do you remember that? They had like huge hits, Perfect Way, Wood Bees, Hypnotize, um, which I also love. <laughs> but that's because you're a right thinking individual. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like those records? I mean, yeah. Okay, great, great records. Awesome. So the reason I primarily chose this is that this is a single that, you know, spoke to me from being um, kind of political in a way, not this song. This song I chose, Mesthetics, because my band's called The Mesthetics, and I wanted to tell people that I was in a band called The Mesthetics and that they should come see The Mesthetics. No, but, <laughs> but no, I really, but uh, because uh, there, there are other songs that I could have chosen, but I, I actually really do love this song, and I was carrying around this, um, that I've been carrying around and trying to preach the gospel of Scritty Politty you know, for whatever, 30 years, right? It's like kind of, so I figured I'd try to get it off my chest. So yeah, they started out as like a Marxist band, uh, putting out their own records. They'd make their own sleeves. They'd tell you on the sleeves, like how much it costs to make the sleeve and um, the means of production. Um, they had very like smarty pants references to all sorts of Marxists. <laughs> theory theory uh, theoreticians on their um on their records which i adored um and they were difficult and weird but i also had a lovely like green guard side the singer had this like lovely voice they also transitioned into a pop band in a in a kind of um in a kind of way where they kept a lot of their smarty pants philosophical nods and yet still brought it back to like started trying to listen sound like Michael Jackson and I was like to me I was like yes like bring back soul music you know like let's do this you know it was really um, for somebody who has a deep-seated passion for that I really respected where they were going with it um, and um, so I was all on board for it. And in fact, like the drum, they, they used a lot of drum programming and a lot of, at, uh, are you gonna play, you wanna play a little bit? This is a great song. Make sure the volume's up. I think I remember reading about that. I mean, when he, if, I don't remember the exact progression, but he ended up moving to New, getting this deal, moving to New York and just going for it, right? Like commercially yeah. speaking. And like, again, early sequencers, like we're just, we're just going for this all the way, <laughs> which is every so, fair light available, right? <laughs> which is so amazing considering what we just heard before that, of course, and <laughs> Marxist theory and writing, you know, your hand, the price on the sleeves and all that stuff. Right. 
Yeah, it was a, I mean, there was a little bit of a transition there. If you read about you can read about him on Wikipedia. So he did this record called Songs to Remember, which is like a little bit of a bridge, which has this song called uh, Sweetest Girl on it. Um, that Robert Wyatt plays the piano on it, which is interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah, wow. so he's a big Robert Wyatt head. So the early stuff is like uh, soft machine nods. There's I figured that out, and like Henry Cow and stuff like that. He's there. He's kind of came out of that world a little bit. Fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, I didn't either until until really. He started doing more interviews recently, which has been great because it's been like there's silence my whole life. Guy and I and Mike Watt like are all fans, and <laughs> so we. And now trained. I'm picturing Watt like you know in the van with Perfect Way. He's coming. We're it. playing here in Baltimore with him. Oh really? Yeah, pretty soon. I think on the 31st of March. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, with Watt with Plug. his trio. Yeah, so. that's fantastic. We're yeah. Auto Bar. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, so you should come out to that, and we can all discuss Scritti Politi. Maybe I can try to get Watt to do a cover. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I, I'm not going to promise anything. But yeah, he's. It turns out that he's a big fan, and you know, Guy and I were big fans of of theirs as well. I never, and actually, the only time I ever saw Scritti Politi play was here in Baltimore. They played the Sonar in the White Bread. Black beer is that yeah, what it was right. called? Yeah, right. Oh, eight, he kind oh, of nine. came back with a yet another iteration that was yeah. a little bit more Brian Wilson influence. It's actually a fantastic record as well. As you can tell, he can do no wrong in my. <laughs> He's got pipes of gold and uh, is a brilliant writer. So if you get a chance, if you get a chance to listen to that record, that's a fantastic record. It's a beautiful record. Um. Yeah, so that's basically it. You know, all through through that um, period, I mean, it kind of took me back to like, um, you know, I stole a lot of like drum licks off of those drum programs and a lot of hi-hat work off of those um, and just sort of fell in love with that, that idea um, of making great sounding records, you know, bigger sounding records. Uh, the The is another band I listened to a lot right around then in the mid 80s uh, for that same reason, because it's just like the record, they made the best sounding records. So before we would like mix a Fugazi record, we'd have The The on like super loud, you know. Ted, again, probably through Ted nicely, probably he'd probably he's the one who's like you gotta listen to this really loud, and then we, um, yeah, he's kind of a, a real mentor in that way. You know, there are so many misapprehensions about you know punk rock and what it's supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be, and you know uh, you probably lived through some of them. I certainly did, but you know we had Colin Newman on the show, um, yeah, who I uh, love some time back. And he wanted to talk about production and his picks were like Steely Dan and, you know, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, which I didn't see coming. <laughs> and, you know, and he had really good answers for all these things, but it was all about like, you know, I mean, they started as a, you know, quote unquote punk band, but clearly they were interested in a lot of other stuff. And he was all along thinking like, how do I make this sound good? 
which yeah. is not necessarily something I think maybe it's cool to admit maybe when you're 17 years old and you're making your first, I mean, you want it to sound good, yeah. but you're not going to sweat it as much maybe. Yeah. Well, there's also like, there's, there's ways to make the bad brain sound bad and they achieved it. You know, I mean, there was like, <laughs> like you turn the um, snare up way too loud and try to make it sound like a top 40 record, but have it still sound like the bad brains. It sounds bad. And so, like, I still employ those techniques. If I'm making making a like a you know a faster song, you know, you don't want it to get leaden down by like a giant production drums. Um, so there's appropriate there's appropriate you know production for things. And like part of trying to make a great sounding record, and a lot of people are like, how do you make how do you get that drum sound? How you can do the button? It's like, well, you have to listen to the way your drums are coming over the speakers. You know, you have to listen and respond as a listener to everything you do. I mean, every time you write something, every time you record something, and every time you mix something, you have to be, you have to switch hats like all the time. There's one thing to go into a studio and just flail away, and there's another thing to go like, oh, I can't hear anything, nothing sounds good. How do we fix it? And so there was a lot of that. Making the Fugazi records was a lot of that. It's like, let's switch this snare drum let's put this mic really close to the you know we worked on our records really really hard and we were all just like big record heads you know big nerds and like you know finding the right exact reverb and the right frequency and the game messing with the parametric stuff and we like i love the studio i mean i live i love to use the studio as an instrument and i still I still, I still do, you know, I mean, I, I, that's my favorite thing to do in the world is sit around and monkey with the mixes and record things. Um, so I've done a lot of soundtrack things for, for movies and TVs. And I love, that's one of the things I love about it. It's like just, just being at work, just being able to do that and get far out sounds and, um, you know, trying kind of probably stuff I picked up from like loving you know, and, uh, but just loving records, just loving the soundscapes, you know, that whole thing. At one point we actually went in and I, I'm sure maybe Fugazi people know this, but we actually did a record with Albini, who I love to death. I love his work, his sounds that he gets, but we did it really quickly and we weren't afforded the ability to the time to actually like to do that, to kind of like monkey around and make kind of make the record a little bit more fantastical. <laughs> And it and it didn't work for us, you know. And it continues to me. Now, having having said that, if you can get like a good take, if you get a good sound and you get a good take, you know, that's that that is the record. And and knowing when that happens is important too. The final piece of music Canty chose as being crucial to him was "One More Red Nightmare." by King Crimson. nightmare it's off the record red it's the last king crimson record that the trio of john wett and bill bruford and 
Robert Fripp did together. I did, can I just jump in with an anecdote here that I want to ask you? It actually leads to something before you even yeah. explain this. Sure. So I have a friend who's, I don't know if this all should make it to air, but I have a friend who's in a band that recorded a record for Discord in early 90s. And the, he had a, he, he was not really like doctrinaire punk rock in the way that a lot of bands were at that time. And he was a drummer and he had a splash cymbal. And the rest of the band is like, you can't have a splash cymbal on a Discord record. <laughs> and I just heard a China crash during yeah. that. So well, you really can't have a China no, crash. No, on no, a no, no, no. That's totally wanky. <laughs> um, but or theoretically. So I, I'm just Iver the Hans- politics of symbols, right? Ivor Hansen had a splash cymbal. Okay. And he was in SOA and the Faith. So there you go. Well, that was a really good scritty just- record too. The politics of symbols. <laughs> but. <laughs> but it is it is interesting though, right? Like there are. I wasn't telling people components. I like this record back then. Oh, okay. You're keeping it to yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> there you go. I wasn't shoving it down people's throats in high school. But isn't it funny how we can have those sort of signifiers, right? Of course, there's that, oh, every yeah. subculture. Like, no, man, you don't do that. That's oh yeah, totally back then, cool. Back then, it was everything. I mean, the idea, the identity of uh, of. of what you lives are really challenging to bring a record into your to bring a Smith's record home and have it sit in the corner and you stare at it like I like that record like what does that mean, you know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, and you're yeah. in the throes of like because there was a I mean there was really a transition out of out of like things get like as much as I love the Bad Brains at some point like. It sucked to go to their shows because all the, these meatheads would show up and everything was getting so violent. I just I, like pulled the ripcord, you know. It's like we got to do something else, you know. And so that kind of opened everything else up to me. I was like, oh, I'm looking for looking for something everywhere. And uh, about this time, I had a friend, Peter Fetner, in high school. I transitioned to my third high school, if we're keeping count. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, at uh, Emerson in DC and uh, he and he turned me on to that to that record and because he I mean he liked Rights of Spring we were I was in Rights of Spring at the time and he was like he liked what we were doing but he's like oh there's this all this other stuff there's you know Genesis Lamb Lies Down on Broadway there's that and then and that's actually about the time I started getting into um like reapproaching all like drummers and like like proper drumming, you know, like going to see Tony. I'd go see Tony Williams. I'm like, oh, okay. Like I started researching why I really like another one of the songs I thought about instead of this was Footprints, which is off of Miles Smiles, which is a Wayne Shorter composition. But it's like if you haven't listened to Miles Smiles, it's like the most amazing one of the most amazing thing, um, primarily for me because of Tony Williams' um, work on it. Um, but I would go see those guys. I go see Elvin Jones. I go see Tony Williams, and 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 the skills that everybody was exhibiting like really started to turn me on. And Bill Bruford was one of those guys as well. I mean, and he was doing it in the rock format, you know, where he was right like with Fripp, especially like that his uh, Fripp's tonality and everything he'd done with Bowie and um, you know all the Eno records, you know, and all that that whole and. All that stuff and Roxy music, like they all started to turn me on about the same time. But this band with the trio, 
really and and one of the it's one of the things that i like try to like when i'm working with the aesthetics now i'm like this is like the perfect lineup where you have everybody's doing their job you know like the guitars and you're writing and no mellotron well i would love to have a mellotron player <laughs> do you hate the mellotron no no i just you know it's like sometimes mellotron is good and other times they had a lot of Mellotron actually on the live. There's a, a, a bunch of live things, uh, recordings from this area era where they had a Mellotron. Out Do people them. know what a Mellotron is? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a savvy audience here. Um, yeah, no, it's um, so. So to me, it's just like this was representative of like like taking myself drumming wise you know kind of seriously and trying to find achievable goals out there you know or people to emulate people to steal from records i love that had that feeling where the people were communicating with each other you know that's one thing i love the all the records that we made but like one thing that might be missing in a lot of them is that level of like real what feels like real communication between the instruments you know what i mean um except for when there's like something you know kind of outland you, you try to put the x factors in there but um but getting more into jazz and i was just seeing uh, uh, listening to him but also seeing like steve lacy the soprano saxophonist was coming through town a lot and um at dc space was which you know like would have the um art ensemble people like the or lester bowie jazz fantasy they would a lot of a lot of these sun Ra would come through a lot and i try to i was oftentimes the only one of my friends who would go but like i'd go down to blues alley by myself to see elvin jones play with wayne shorter and i was always i always you know i'm really glad i did at this point because i know what it feels like to have elvin jones pushing air around a room you know, it's terrifying, <laughs> awesome and terrifying. Um, so, um, yeah, to me, that was that was that. And it's and it's, and it's like kind of been uh, there's not like a ton of um, like all this stuff. All these records are things that are, are, you know, now 40 years old. Right. So I don't I don't there are other records that touch me, you know. But um, to me, um, as with all of us, is that, you know, you find you, you're molded. as what this is, show is all about, I'm sure. But you're, you're forged in the, with those initial impressions, and they hit you so hard. And the sense of ownership that, that comes from that, of being changed by external forces, um, is... Um, it's hard to shake and it's hard to want to um, erase with other sounds you know and so we all carry these things with us these um, touchstones with us everywhere we go it's fascinating to get old This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. 
Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.